All right, friends, Greg Kokel here, um, the host of your show. I've got a guest here I want to tell you about in just a moment. And, um, you know, when I wrote the story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between, whenever you write a book, you always list the acknowledgments, like here are the people that you're thankful for, for helping you write it, and the editors, and all the people that have been significant in writing it. But here's the way I started out my acknowledgments for this particular book. I wrote a host of people deserve credit for any fruitfulness this work affords to its readers. Many will note the influence of three authors, remarkably capable Christian thinkers, who've had a profound impact on my thinking as a Christian and therefore on this work and on my life. And then I list them. The first is C.S. Lewis. The second is Francis Schaeffer. And the third is my guest today, a man who has Gosh, he has influenced me more as a Christian thinker than than anyone else I can, I can even imagine in my 50 years now as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, author or contributor to more than 95 books, 100 articles in journals, of course, I'm talking about none other than J.P. Moreland. Jay, it is what a treat it is to have you on board with me today. Well, Greg, I love you so much. It's just always good to be with you and work together. Well, I'm looking at this little bio clip here about the new book that you have that we're going to be talking about. It says that uh, you were, in 2022, was selected by the best schools as one of the 50 most influential living philosophers in the world. And I hope you stay on that list of living, influential <laughs> philosophers for a long time. But you and I are starting to push the uh, the end of our, our program here, aren't we, a little bit? Well, I can tell I'm sliding for home, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I uh, we've had a friendship for many, many, many years. In fact, uh, before we started Stand to Reason 30 years ago, you and I counseled together uh, about beginning the organization, you and I counseled together about my thoughts about getting married and who I was going to marry. I mean, that's how far back our relationship goes. Um, but I remember a conversation that we had. This isn't related to the book. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, we actually had it with a. I don't know if you recall this. And about about twelve years ago, maybe twenty eleven or twenty twelve. Um, you and I and Frank Beckwith and Craig Hazen and Bill Craig were in Turlock, California at some kind of event, and we were all having dinner there. We drove there in a van, and we were enjoying dinner and talking, and we were reflecting on those people that were important to us when we were kind of all pups during the Jesus movement way back when, and you were with Crusade that time, and Bill Craig was with Crusade at the time, and uh, I don't know where Hazen was or Beckwith, but, you know, we were all fairly young Christians, and we had we had learned from some other people like Norm Gleisler and Josh McDowell and uh, John Montgomery and Francis Schaeffer. And, and you know, there weren't many people back then. And I remember you, as we were reflecting on the people that we owed so much to, to help us to kind of get into play, that you were cheering us on and you were saying to our little band of brothers there, look at brothers, we only got another 10 or 15 more years. That's it. Let's just finish well. Let's just keep going, 
going forward. And and uh, and here we are, uh, almost fifteen years later, and we're still in play, aren't we, brother? Well, we sure are. And I'll tell you, I I just want to finish well, and I want to die well, and not embarrass the Lord. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of amazing, but we are still going. And uh, I guess it's because in my mind, there's no other game in town. <laughs> yeah. This is this is the big deal right here. Yeah. That reminds me of Peter's comment there at the end of John chapter six, when Jesus had some pretty hard words for the audiences, uh, the upper, the, the, rather the bread of life discourse. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people left and, and he asked, the disciples, okay, you're going to go? And they, Peter's speaking for him, says, well, where are we going to go? You know, you have the words. Doesn't mean it's easy, right? Right. It doesn't mean it's going to gonna get easier or, you know, but you have the words that give eternal life. And uh, that, that conversation stood out for me. In fact, I, I wrote a small piece about it for our group called The Third Column, you know, and how the influence that those men had had for us in maybe I'd call it the first column, and we were kind of the second column, you know, and then the third column was all the multitudes that we've been able to to reach. And you, with your wonderful program, MA Phil program, I remember your goal there when I started in uh, 1993, that MA Phil program. It took me a long time to graduate. You guys are so patient with me, uh, oh, thir- no. 13 years. But uh, your goal was to graduate 100 students from your program that ended up getting PhDs and began having a powerful impact in the world. Whatever became of that particular goal? Well, we actually have now uh, placed about 230 in, in PhD programs, and there, there are like 80 to 85 tenure-track professors. There are people like, like you and uh, Stan Wallace, who's uh, the president of right. the Global Scholars, who are just multiplying an impact beyond anything that that I could do hmm. and and I think when you multiply yourself and and, and it just it just makes sense mm-hmm. and so God has uh, blessed what we've been doing I think one of the reasons Greg is that we are we are faithful to the scriptures and we're solid uh historic uh inerrantist christians mm-hmm. uh and uh we really haven't veered uh from that original uh commitment and uh vision you know i i i do a talk now that used to be titled i actually have the sticker in the in my uh bible right here the yellow sticker i wrote it down i got so frustrated with so many christians being confused about basic things that are not confusing I, it ought not to be confusing. I just wrote down, faithfulness is not theologically complicated, you know? Right. It, it's not that com- complicated theologically. Now, with the encroaching world and all the things that are happening and the new isms and, you know, everything we're facing now with the sexual issues and with the critical theory and all of this, it's the things that you've been aware of for a long time in your profession as a as a professor uh, of philosophy, and now it's now— right in the mainstream. It's everywhere, and it's really taken a toll on the church. Why is it now that you are closing, you know, a big segment of your life with your magnum opus titled The Substance of Consciousness, a comprehensive defense of contemporary substance dualism, which for a lot of people, they're not sure what that means, but I'll tell you simply, 
JP is defending the existence of the soul. Okay, That's right. why this book now? That's a really good question, Greg. Uh, my own view has been that Christians are underrepresented and need to influence and penetrate the highest tiers of, of, of the academy. Mm -hmm. Now, I am fully convinced that we all have different roles in the body of Christ, and there are several layers of impact. So that's why I've written a number of uh, popular books uh, for a general audience, because I am deeply committed to that. Mm -hmm. But I also believe that we need to be uh, having some of us publish in, in high-quality jur journals and with high-quality academic presses like Wiley Blackwell. Uh, in my view, Oxford and Cambridge and Wiley Blackwell are the three best uh, presses in philosophy, because I want to get Christian ideas that out in the graduate courses at secular universities. I want secular professors to be reading my pushback. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brandon Rickaball, who wrote it with me, uh, our pushback against the, the claims that we're basically just our brains and nervous systems or our bodies, and the idea that there's a soul is kind of like the tooth fairy. That's And that's ridiculous. And so we're pushing back. We're wanting to get the book reviewed in scholarly journals because we want the academic community who ends up becoming the professors of our students who go to college mm -hmm. to, to, to have to think carefully about their outlandish claims because there are, if I may just put it this way, there's a work with considerable gravitas mm -hmm. that uh, it, it argues against them. And if they're going to keep treating undergraduates like shooting fish in a barrel, they can't do it and have any kind of intellectual integrity unless they interact with our book and other books of the same type, mm -hmm. like by Richard Swinburne. Uh, you ha they have a duty now to answer our, our, our arguments. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why I want – plus, it, you know, it makes Christians, I think, feel proud and confident if they can see a Bill Craig – uh, who is able to interact at the highest level academically. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that just elevates the confidence of the community. Mm -hmm. you know, they say, well, that that's my that person speaks for me mm -hmm. and uh, and that sort of thing. And I just felt like that was a, a need. Well, you worked with Bill on uh, the Philosophic Foundations of uh, Christian Worldview, and one of the places where you wrote quite a bit about the soul and, and expanded the foundation for a lot of people who are who are geared towards that way of thinking about Christianity. It's not for everybody, but, you know, that's, I think, that particular book, it fits what you just described, Jay, that, that uh, we can look to our people and say, well, maybe I don't know how to answer that, but we've got people who've done the deep dive and that are respectable people and that have have status and gravitas, to use your word, in the field and have provided an answer. And actually, this is one of the reasons we started I was motivated to start Stand to Reason. Uh, it was right when I was starting the MA Phil program. Um, I'd already been exposed to your work. Actually, I took a course from you over at Simon Greenleaf University with my first MA. And yes. uh, it was it, it was r the realization that we had the the best thinkers historically for for a thousand years. You know, if you look at the history of philosophy, all that multi multi volume set. 
they were almost all Christians from the time of yes. the the ancients or from the time of Jesus, you know, and yet these these ideas were not trickling down. We didn't we weren't influencing the 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 general market, the uh the public square the way we ought to. And that's why, you know, what I learned from you and and other people who are speaking up as as uh I think it was uh Oz Guinness said, we, we weren't out thought. We were just not there when the thinking was being done. Wow. Well, yeah. well, Greg, I, I think that you have raised the bar uh, among uh, people who minister to college students, uh, people who are very uh, – they, they read and they, they, have, they think. You have raised the bar as to what Christian apologetics and Christian philosophy means for, for hundreds of thousands of people. And I think that I just want to compliment you on that hmm. because you're, you're, you and your ministry is known for excellence of quality. Hmm. Uh, whatever your ministry does something, they do it well and they do it honestly. Hmm. I mean, you take questions and if you don't know the answer, you say so. I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I want to thank you uh, for what you've done in maintaining a ministry of integrity hmm. And maintaining a ministry that, while it reaches a mass audience, it is it is integrous and it, it is marked with excellence. Mm. Thank you f- so much for that. Well, you know the old saying: "You stand on the uh, shoulders of those who came before." And I've been standing on your shoulders for a long yeah. time. In fact, I think I've mentioned this to you before. I don't I don't actually know where you end and I begin sometimes when I'm talking about things. Did J.P. Borland say that or did I make that up or I don't yeah. know. But uh, I'm saying it now, so I'm going to take credit for it, you know. <laughs> no, that's right. That's that kind right. of thing. But one of the areas, of course, that you've had the deepest influence in my own thinking, given the um, the academic uh, environment that we we came to know each other in over at Talbot and the magnificent M.A. Phil program there. There's nothing like it. Other schools do programs, you know, MAs in philosophy, but I, I, it was such a magnificent experience for me to be under your tutelage and the others that were part of that program. And you've expanded that program since then. So just uh, anybody thinking about an MA Phil, uh, start with Talbot and end with Talbot. You don't have to go any further as far as I'm concerned. But the, the class that I had the most fun in and that I was able to translate into active conversations with people on the air, because then I was doing commercial radio at KBRT, and of course you were on the, sh- the show a number of times too, was my uh, philosophy of mind class, the whole class about the soul. And um, I wonder if you could kind of introduce our discussion about this, um, about this issue, uh, by by talking about the significance of the discussion for Christians. Well, there is a, a, a view of the world that's in the drinking water now in Western culture, and and people don't even know it's influenced them, and it, and it's. Philosophical naturalism. Now, postmodernism is also having an impact, but but I think that the fundamental one is is a naturalist view of the world, which says basically that the physical world is all there is, was, or ever will be, and really the only, or at least the high, the very best way of knowing a reality is through the hard sciences: physics, chemistry, geology, uh, neuroscience, and so on. And everything else is sort of maybe your opinion or what you'd like to be true, but you can't Mm -hmm. really know that it's true. And so Christians have retreated 
they've accepted that. And the authority that the doctor has is so much greater than the authority the pastor has because the doctor actually knows something. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the pastor understands the, the, the rules of the Kiwanis Club or, or the First Baptist Church, you know, but, but they don't, they're not true for everybody, and, and they're his, his truth, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is that a naturalist worldview cannot withstand scrutiny. It falls apart. And one of the ways it falls apart is it cannot explain the nature of human persons. Mm. You can't explain how consciousness could arise from brute matter. Mm-hmm. You can't explain what makes uh, unifies my consciousness if I'm my brain. But I, but I look at the world and I have one unified conscious perspective on the world. And and you can't explain uh, a whole host of things about us. And so. I wanted to make the, make the case that the soul is not a discarded and outdated notion, but it is actually more reasonable than believing on my brain or that I'm my body or some physical, a computer or, or some physical object at some time. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you a story and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. But a handful of years ago, I was in a Sunday school class at the church I attend. And there were, I would say, 40 people in the class, and this person was giving a talk about uh, how the self grows and, 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 and how to form your, yourself. And um, she used the word soul, and uh, one gentleman raised his hand. He was an older gentleman, and he said, I've been a Christian now for 30 years, and I still have no idea whatever as to what a soul is mm. can anybody in here tell me what what is a soul mm. now i can answer the question but that's not the point the point is that how could you be a believer for 30 years and not have that down uh in a way that's fairly clear and, and understandable mm. uh and so that what that shows is that we have turned what we are over to the scientists, and we don't spend much time thinking about it in light of our Christian uh, worldview. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember you saying once when they have these shootings at schools, these terrible things that happen, that uh, if they want someone to bring comfort, they bring the pastor. If they want someone to help understand what went on, they bring the psychiatrist in. And this is the dichotomy that you're talking about. That's right. Exactly right. It did strike me that was unusual when the person says, I don't know anything about the soul, that I understand what he means. Nobody's tutored him in some of the specifics, but he probably knows more about his soul than he knows about anything else in his life because— Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But he just doesn't know how to think about it in those terms. And this is one of the things that you you helped me to do. We're going to take a quick break here, JP, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit just about the aspect of attending to the soul. If we have a soul, then what does that mean for our— soulish development, okay? And then later on, we'll get into some more of the arguments why we think there is such a thing, and it's not just the so-called ghost in the machine. My guest here, J.P. Borland, um, one of my most important mentors in my life, his recent book, The Substance of Consciousness, A Comprehensive Defense 
of contemporary substance dualism. We'll be back in just a moment here on Standard Within Reason. Stay with us. Hey, friends. Would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Uh, talking now with J.P. Moreland, uh, the distinguished professor from uh, Talbot University, my dear friend, one of my most important mentors in my life, certainly in terms of me as a thinking Christian. Uh, the book he's uh, just recently come out. Uh, when was this released, J.P.? It was released in November of 2023. Okay, so it's been out a few months. The Substance of Consciousness, a Comprehensive Defense of Contemporary Substance, substance Dualism. Now, it's a mouthful, and, and the book is is meant to address the highest levels of the academy on issues that are being discussed at the highest levels of the academy, and we just talked about the importance of that. Of course, JP has written a number of other books that uh, deals with this issue, uh, Body and Soul with Scott Ray, Immortality with Gary Habermas. Is immortality still in play? Is that still? A... Yes, it is. It's uh, Wiffenstock published. Oh, okay, great. Uh, I mentioned Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. That's more of a textbook, but you got to have it if you're going to think carefully about a whole host of issues as a Christian. It's in my library. All of these are, actually. And uh, and the, 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 the actually, the most accessible book on this issue, if people want a very popular treatment, is just simply called The Soul. And I presume that's one of the, your more, more recent books, I think, on this issue. Yeah. Is that right? That's and right. so I yes. imagine it's still, in, it's still in print. I checked it out oh, on yes. Amazon. Yeah. So uh, if somebody wants to, okay, what are the basics? This is where you can go. But let me talk just pastorally a little bit, not so much philosophically about this issue. One of the things that was so beneficial to me sitting in your class on uh, the philosophy of mind, which is what we're talking about here, um, was for me— to come to the realization that uh, I, I didn't have a soul, I was a soul. <laughs> I was an embodied, a soul-body union, and that um, I needed to, if that were true, then it became important to me to attend to the health of my soul. 
And honest to goodness, Jay, this this sounds weird probably, but um, that was when I first started thinking about being a virtuous person, about developing my soul in the area of virtue. Now, it didn't mean I wasn't didn't care about being good, but for some reason, that word that that you introduced to me, I knew it before, but it was a way that you introduced in our commu- communication and the classes and stuff, the idea to attending to our souls to develop virtue, like a, a eudaimonia, a, the, the, the good life in the best sense of the word, the, the, uh, the virtuous life, virtue ethics is another way of characterizing. First time I ever thought about that, but it was because I realized that I had this dimension that needed to be taken care of as much or even more as my physical body. Yep. needed to be taken care of. Can you uh, talk about that concept a little bit, the care well, of the soul? absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, you can't really fix something if you don't know what it is. Mm. I mean, I, I can't fix a car because I don't know what it is inside, but somebody who really knows what an engine's like has the ability to repair it that, where I don't. And the same is true for personal spiritual growth. Growing in Christ requires that I have some understanding of what I am. <laughs> now, uh, the problem is that most people that, who were like I used to be and who were like you were before that class that, that struck you tended to view the Christian life in terms of uh, you know pleasing God by being obedient to his moral commands. And we thought in terms of right and wrong and and guilt and uh, forgiveness, and that was the extent of our thinking. Now, that was all true and good. That's not the problem. The problem is it left out a whole other part of, of what we are before God, and that's the cultivation of our souls. And when you start thinking about that, then you start thinking about uh, things like virtues and learning to flourish uh, and uh, thrive as a as the human person God made us to be. And there are ways to thrive and ways not to thrive. Hmm. And so uh, virtues are, are characteristics that that are, are things like kindness or or courage or truth truthfulness and honesty. Uh, those are things that that if you cultivate those, and those will require you taking certain practices on, but if you do that, then you will become formed uh, in dependence on the Holy Spirit, which means I always I don't do this alone. I always ask for his help to give me strength to, to go further than I could on my own. But uh, you end up actually increasingly embodying the fruit of the Spirit, which, which if you've looked at that list, who in the world would not want that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who wouldn't want a dad to look like that or, you know, one of your best friends to be that way? And so um, when you learn about the soul, I'll just say very simply, the soul is a, as an immaterial individual thing that contains consciousness and animates the body. So it enlivens the body. If you take the soul out of the body, it's a corpse now. It's not a, right. a living body. So the soul is what contains your consciousness and not your brain, although they interact and affect one another. So um, cultivating 
my my uh, my my beliefs and and where what I think about how I engage in self-talk when it's negative and that's that's controlling my thoughts that are in my soul uh, my desires and learning to cultivate some desires and trying to lay aside others all of those are, are ways of cultivating the strength and godliness mm-hmm. of your soulish dimension. And the result is that not only do you thrive, but you become the kind of person that is so pleasing to God. And he, he loves when we grow like that. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is uh, the, the gist of how the soul relates to what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Knowing we have a soul raises the question, well, how do you grow one? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what do I do to make this thing grow, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's the right question. I, uh, I think often about this passage. In, uh, in fact, I read it the other night in First Timothy where Paul says, a physical exercise mm, profits a little, all right? There's some profit. But... Godliness is a means of great gain, for it holds a promise not just for this life, but also for the life to come. And it reminded it re, that verse reminds me of something that I attribute to you. I'm not sure if you you've said this a bunch and you'll recognize it, or you said it once and uh, it stood uh, out for me. I'll, cl- I'll claim it. Okay, I'll claim you can it. claim it. <laughs> and what you said was, and this this was a transformative concept for me, especially as you walk this life and face the challenges that God allows you to face in this life. Fifty years for me as a Christian have been very challenging 50 years. Satisfactions, fulfillments, but a lots of challenge, lots of heartache, lots of difficulty. And I, I, I'm i not trying to be model, and I think this is true for every person who yes. walks this path, including you. you, and, bet. you bet. But what you said was that this life is a, is a place where God makes us fit to spend eternity with Him. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, it does. And you see, people wonder why why there's a hell, and and there are a lot of reasons for that. For the, for example, the demands of justice mm-hmm. and the violation of God's holiness. But one of the reasons, yeah, that there is a hell, and Dallas Willard put it this way: is he said nobody will go to hell. Every everyone will be in heaven who can stand it. <laughs> and what he meant was that pe- some people don't like God and mm-hmm. they don't want to be they would don't want to be around him mm-hmm. and they don't like what he stands for. Mm-hmm. And, and so those people are day by day cultivating a path where they're hardening their hearts and becoming less and less like God intended us to be. Mm-hmm. But those of those of us who are seeking to grow and we all have a long way to go. We all know that it's a it's three steps forward and two back. Mm-hmm. But at least at least our aim is to continue to make progress while we have life. Mm-hmm. We are becoming more and more uh, uh, suitable for a place like the afterlife. Now, I'm not suggesting that this earns it for us. Right. I'm just saying that that we become the kind of person that hungers for even more of this, mm-hmm. which will you know which will have uh, you know in the uh, afterlife. So. This is reminiscent of Lewis's um, approach a little bit in The Great Divorce, uh, as I recall. You know, it's just like the people who 
are not fit for heaven, aren't going to enjoy heaven, you know, kind of That's thing. Right. Same, same, same concept. I've always characterized this soul in a kind of simple way. And what we do at Standard Reason is we kind of rub shoulders with the smart people like you and, and, and then try to figure it out and find a way to translate it. So I've always kind of characterized the soul as the invisible self, which yes. is the repository the place where the locus of our of our essential identity and our yes. our thoughts and our beliefs and our uh, acts of will and our intentions and those basic activities um and um it, it's it's not surprising though that there'd be so much pushback regarding the existence of the soul and therefore the necessity of all of the works that you've done on the soul on all of the levels that you've addressed them. Um, because I, I've, I've often started my talk, a talk on apologetics, by saying, you know, when you think about it, there's a lot of ways to prove that Christianity is false. And of course, nobody expects me to say that. But I say, wait, right. our story starts in the beginning. God, if there's no God, there's no story. Right. And one of the things— is the existence of the soul. Because uh, yes. if we're just meat all the way down, then then what? It, there's nothing to survive the death of our body, and therefore Amen. the issues of heaven and hell are— They don't are, even arise. They yeah. don't even arise. Yeah, now, I, I, now what, do you, what do you make of um, people like Nancy Murphy, who over at Fuller is a Christian physicalist who thinks we are— meet all the way down, as it were, but still there's a place for us in the resurrection. How does that work? Because some people encounter that. Well, I've actually debated some Christians who hold this view, and they they believe that that science has pretty much shown that we're our brains and that we're not souls. That is completely false, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not true, but that's Given that they they hold that, in my opinion, they they want to be respected by their academic peers, rather than by the Christian community and and, uh, and the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So uh, they end up concluding that when you die, uh, you you either go out of existence, and then at the general resurrection, when Christ comes back in in the final way, we are recreated ex nihilo out of nothing, mm -hmm. and uh, we the, there's a huge time gap between our death and our coming alive again as as bodies, living bodies. But it will seem to us as if it was the next instant. So the thief of the cross, uh, Jesus isn't really saying you're going to be with me in paradise this day. He's saying it will seem to you as if the next instant you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, just as a, an aside, when you're dying on a cross, I don't think you're going to be using figurative language. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he was telling them what all the all the Pharisees believed, and that is that there once you die— your soul departs and it it, it goes to God or or, or uh, in another place that's that that was called uh, a sheol and uh, that you will eventually get a resurrected body. And this, that's what he was saying. But I think I think that's why this happens. And there are other people besides Murphy that think that well, maybe when you die, you get you just immediately get a new body. Now the problem with that is. 
if I'm my body right now and I get a new one, how is that me? Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems to be like a person has one set of clothes and they take them off and get a new set of clothes. And it's still me because I'm the one that wears these clothes and now wears those. But right. if I'm the clothes, <laughs> then if there's a new pair of set of clothes, that ain't me, brother. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, and so there are there are problems there. Well, I just had another thought, too, in the first uh, characterization of, you know, the idea that, you know, even though there's a gap of time, the phrase you use, it seems to us or it seems to you that no time has passed. Even the phrase presumes a continuity <laughs> of the self, right? Well, yes. <laughs> I, I Like, I go to sleep and I wake up. It's still me that's doing these things. But on this view, when the body dies, the... The, the individual, the entire individual ceases yes. to exist. Abs yes, yes. So there's no there's no continuity that you can seem no. like it used to be whatever. I no, guess, I agree completely. Uh, I mean, unless it's just in the new individual that's created ex nihilo, he has a conscious, he is, has a built-in conscious awareness of a self that he never was. Well, that's and that's misleading, isn't it? God yeah. creates us in a misleading way. I debated a New Testament scholar named Middleton at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, uh, seven or eight years ago. I don't remember. It's online. And he was a New Testament scholar and a Christian physicalist. And so uh, the debate went pretty well, honestly. But but I said, well, what do you do? So what do you do with people that die? What happens? And then he said, well, they pop out of, they go out of existence, and then God re recreates them, like, like you just said, at, in, in the general resurrection. And I said, well, listen, what is it about that new created individual that makes that individual me? I mean, how can that possibly be me mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, to maybe a, a lookalike? And here's mm -hmm. what he said to me, and this is on, online. He said, well, I have found in my pastoral ministry that people who ask questions like that are doing the, using them as smoke screens because they don't want, they, they, that's not, their real issue is a deep spiritual issue, and, and it's just a, an intellectual smoke screen. And I said, with all due respect, sir, we are at an academic institution right now. And we are discussing this among academics. The audience is filled with professors and graduate students. And I happen to know out of 50 years of working with university students that they are there are people that actually wonder about this. Right. And and it's our responsibility on pain of derelict of our duty as, as academics to answer their questions. Mm -hmm. And I believe that you what you're saying here. Is 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 abrogating your responsibility to mm. aren't honest people who've got genuine questions. Well, even that he would bring up the, uh, the 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 kind of the parry that well, this is a spiritual issue. Wait, a what? A spiritual issue? I don't even know what that means in the context yeah. of physicalism. I don't either. See, what? because he's re he's referring to a realm that the. Uh, that the individual person doesn't seem to participate in, in, in because they're physical and that's it. Anyway, so, yeah, the, thank you for clarifying some of that. A lot more we could talk about there. I wondered if you could just give us, and there's a, a host of of uh, rationales that you give in all of your books, and in, go in the deepest um, 
deepest dive in the substance of consciousness, your most recent, basically your magnum opus on on the soul and, and substance dualism. But can you give us what would be the most, two of the most um, accessible kind of ways of arguing yes. in favor of the soul? Well, the first one is that we human persons cannot be divided and we cannot exist as a percentage of ourselves. Now, let me explain. If you have a table, you could cut a third of it off and burn it, and, and the table would exist as two-thirds of the original table. Uh, or you could split it down the middle. And any material object, you could cut it in half, or you could shave a, a portion off until it got down to, say, 80% of the original object. But but we're not like that. We're all or nothing things. I'm either a person or I'm not a person. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no sense that to me being an eighty percent person. Uh, and and I, I've you know somebody may lose their functioning. I can guarantee you, as approaching seventy six, I've lost my ability <laughs> to do a number of things. And I've you know I can't remember you know certain things, but it's still I. You know because here listen to what I said. I have lost those memories. It's still I that's here, but I don't have the memories. Mm -hmm. Now, now in operations, Greg, they have they have taken out 55% or more of the brain, and there's only 45% of the brain left. There is a syndrome called Dandy Walker's syndrome. Mm. That people ought to look it up. I've seen an x-ray of a person who has this in their brain. They have, are you ready? 10% of a brain. There is a there is about a quarter of an inch lining of brain tissue that goes inside their skull. You and, and the rest go ahead. I was just gonna say you and I have met some undergraduates like that too. Well, I certainly have. <laughs> and uh, but but that's a that's a source of a completely different <laughs> but 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 what's inside the skull is 90% sack of just fluid. Now, these people function, they get married, they go to work, they function 80% or so like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and the person who loses 55% of their brain, they're not a 45% of a person anymore. Right. Uh, there, there's just no... Con so we're not capable of existing as a percentage, but our brains and bodies are. So we must not be our brains and bodies. And the, the best alternative is that I'm a single spiritual self. Mm -hmm. Here here's the, here's the second one I'll give you. Um if 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 uh Hope Moreland's husband is is the same thing as the person who's speaking on this uh podcast, then we don't have two people, we've got one person. Right. And whatever's true of uh Hope Moreland's husband, 58, had better be true of the person speaking on this podcast. You're identical. If you, we're identical. There's no two. I, I, I actually hope Moreland's husband is the person who's speaking here. Well, what that means is if there's anything true of one of those things that's not true of the other, or even if there's something true of one, or, or excuse me, if there's something that could possibly be true of one, that couldn't possibly be true of the other, even though they're not true right now. Say, for example, I, I'm 5'7", I'm but I could have been 5'9", but, but this other object 
that, that we're talking about. Uh, let's just say it's a tree stump and uh, it's not even possible <laughs> for it to be five nine as a stump. Well, then they can't be the same thing. So here's the point. I am the kind of thing that I, that could possibly exist after death is in an afterlife where my body's left behind. I'm not saying that I do, which I do believe I do, and I mm -hmm. think there's evidence of that. But I'm saying everybody would grant that I possibly could. I, de I, I debated with Gary Habermas and Peter Kreeft, uh, three atheists, mm -hmm. about life after death, and they were all willing to allow the evidence to decide the question, and they didn't think there was enough evidence. Well, look, if you heard that archaeologists had discovered a cave with square circles in it in Montana, you wouldn't have to wait around and find out, oh, my gosh, I wonder what yeah. the evidence is. You <laughs> would know already that that's not true because right. that's logically impossible. Right. So the fact that they were willing to allow the evidence to decide it meant that they agreed that disembodied existence after death was possible. They didn't think it was actual. Well, that the simple fact that I could possibly exist without a body is enough to show that I cannot be my brain and body mm -hmm. because my brain and body could not possibly exist disembodied. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the, the argument that doesn't show there's life after death, it shows that I can't be a material object of any kind because I am possibly such that I could, even if I don't, but I could exist without mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And that means I must be a non-physical mm -hmm center of consciousness or self or call it what you want. Mm. So that's a powerful argument. I remember getting into discussions with people who would call me at KBRT. I was in the program going through this material thinking about it, and they would be arguing with me against the existence of the soul, atheists. And uh, and and they would say, well, no. I said, what about your thoughts? And they would say, well, I, I, I can't even remember exactly how the conversation went. But what happened is I would ask them about some obviously immaterial aspect of their of their conscious experience and i would ask if it right. had physical qualities did it extend in space did it um yes. did it have weight did it respond to the laws of physics and chemistry and stuff like that and they said no but uh uh and it and i said well then it can't be physical right so okay. whatever your That's thoughts right. are they're in, they're not physical because they don't have physical qualities and this is this That's is an exactly application right. of the concept that you're describing about what's called the law of identity you know and right. and uh, it it must be something different because it has different qualities i um yes. i uh, often will do this exercise and i don't know remind me if i got this from you because i could be happy to give you credit for it but i invite an audience to close their eyes and all I'm trying to do now is to shake them out of their their kind of their materialism, right? Close your eyes. Imagine your mother uh, doing a chore, maybe working at a computer or doing dishes or uh, I can't say doing dishes anymore, can I? Uh, um, <laughs> leading the uh, the chair as chairman of the board or whatever you want to call it. Okay, so what color is what color blouse is she wearing? That's what the question. And then I ask everybody, open your eyes. Now you tell me. And then they give me all these colors. I said, okay, great. You saw your mother with this color blouse, right? Where was that? Where was that what you saw? You saw it well enough to be able to describe the color and the circumstances. I'll tell you one place it wasn't. It wasn't in your brain. 
because if I cracked your brain open, there, your mom wouldn't be sitting there doing dishes, right? So, and it also shows that colors are not wavelengths of light because there's no light in your brain, but you still yeah. could see the colors. And and what I suggest is you can, you can experience all five of the senses. You can smell a rose. You can feel fur. You can hear Beethoven's fifth. See, when I say that, I know people just heard da 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 da, you know. But it, it, all of those things, they're not as vivid as the actual sensory experience. But we can experience those things um, in our mind mind's eye or in our mind, as it were. And wherever that was, it wasn't physical. It was happening in the non-physical space that your own conscious awareness occupies. Now, people don't know what to do with that. They think it's a trick, but it's not a trick. It's It's not a trick. It's not a trick. Did I get that from you? I don't think so, but it's a good argument. I've heard the argument. I love it. Yeah. Um, But but we years ago, we had a man who may may be one of the top five experts in the world on memory. He's a professor of psychology at UC Santa Barbara, and this guy's published. It makes you sick when you look at his publications. Hmm. Well, he came and lectured uh, on memory to a group of about 20 of us professors. And he's, here's what, how he started off. He said, I have absolutely no idea what it even means to say a memory's in your brain. That's incoherent to me. I've no, I don't even know what it means. It is incoherent. He says memories are not in your brain. Uh-huh. You, you could, you can measure around, and you'll never find a memory in there, like you just said. He said memories are in yourself. They're in the ego, the I. Uh, now the brain can can affect your ability to recall them. Yeah, but that just means that you're that there's a causal dependency on the of the mind on the right. soul and the brain and so forth. But he said your memories are not. <laughs> In your brain. Right. And uh, so, you know, that it, 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 that was just funny. For, uh, we, we just have a few more minutes here, like six more minutes. And I want to I want to ask some questions that I get asked. And Amy and I were knocking these things around, too. Uh, quickly, do you think souls are gendered? I think so, but I'm 60-40. And the reason I do is my, I believe that the soul is what creates the body, uh, forms the body. And if the body is gendered, then I would think the soul would be gendered to form a male body. To fit, to correspond yeah, to properly. Be, to be suitable to, for us. Right, yes. right, right. Could be wrong, but the, I'm 60-40. Are you a traducian or creationist with regards uh, to the soul? I am a traducian. I believe that God created the original souls of each pair, but then uh, like it says in Genesis, he delegated to animals the, the, the ability to generate life after their kind. Right. I believe that we have that same. But, you know, again, I'm not going to get lost. No. Uh, well, I'm in the same. I, I, I'm the same way. And part of what it uh, makes me wonder is I just think of the Bach family, for example, like Johann Sebastian and all of his progeny. They were all magnificent musicians and i don't this is speculative obviously but i i don't i don't have any reason to believe that all of that musical talent was in their genes and it may have been i mean for lack of a better word a kind of soul dna i don't know it's this is speculative but um it does seem to you know a chip off the old block kind of mentality seems to yes. work better with the idea that parents produce the whole individual body and soul as it were uh amy has been confronted with this question a number of times as she wanted me to ask about, um, are, are we in a simulation? 
maybe we're all in simulation. This is like what was that movie uh, with Keanu Reeves? You know the yeah, the Matrix, right? Okay, so yes. yeah, so I don't know why people would think they are. And I remember once you saying. And lots of things are possible, but if we have no reason to believe it's actual, then we have no reason to believe it. What do you think about yes. the possibility? Or somebody asked, well, maybe we're just all part of a simulation. Does right. this relate to the mind-body problem? At all? Yes, it does. The, the The answer is it's obviously that we're not. And the first reason is, think here's how I do it. I say, well, what is a simulation? And I, and you know. I have get people try to explain it to me, and they end up saying something like, "It's, it's a, it's kind of a realm we live in, but it's not reality." Mm -hmm. Well, then I'll say, "Oh, well, where did you get that idea of reality? What, what do you mean by reality?" Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to show them is that you, simu a simulation is a privation of reality, like evil is a privation of good. There could be good without evil. But there can't be evil without good because right. evil is a lack of what ought to be there. Right. There could be a reality without a simulation, but you can't have a simulation without reality because its very nature as a simulation means it is a privation of being real. Mm -hmm. It's not real. And so what I try to show is the fact that you are say, calling this a simulation means you're acknowledging that there is a reality and it falls short of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good point. So here's another one, um, and this has to do with artificial intelligence and the soul, the question of the soul. I, I guess there's a lot of people now that AI is just exploding in its significance and its capabilities, and some of it's actually quite scary to me. Um, uh, I have but pushback, and people have said, what happens when a machine becomes conscious? Will that be proof to you that human beings don't have a soul? Now, I have a comeback to that, but I'm curious what your response is. Well, if if a machine became conscious, that would not prove I don't have a soul. It would prove it does have a soul, <laughs> because because there are no ownerless states of consciousness. I mean, you know, nobody says, "Well, wait a minute." There's a pain floating around the room, but it doesn't belong to anybody. Yeah. Or, or there's a thought that just happened, but it wasn't anybody's. Mm -hmm. it, pains always belong to someone, and mm -hmm. so. So mental states are always the belong to a self. Mm -hmm. They can't exist independently. So if the if a machine could become conscious, their conscious states would have to belong to a self. It could belong to a scattered group of physical parts. Yeah. You know, I, that's the same answer that I gave. So maybe I got it from you way back when. But uh, it would it would this is exactly what people already believe, physicalists believe about human beings, that we are machines made of meat that that's happen exactly to be right. conscious, which they can't make any sense out of. Uh, even right, that's exactly right. Daniel Dennett says consciousness is an illusion, which <laughs> which strikes me so – because an illusion – what is an illusion? Isn't that when your consciousness is being appeared yes. to you in, an, yeah. in, in a false fashion? You've got to be conscious – to have an illusion. So what is the the illusion of consciousness? What is having that illusion is kind of my exactly. question. Exactly. Well, that's that's right. <laughs> so it's a radically self-refuting. There are so many things here. Well, we didn't even got about a minute to go here. We didn't even get to NDEs, near-death experiences. And um, some people make more of those things than I think uh, are legitimate given the evidence. But it strikes me that bare minimum, the 
preponderance of near-death experiences, the particular elements like remote viewing, uh, yeah. demonstrate there's got to be an immaterial self that can separate it, be be distinguished from the physical body. Is that a fair conclusion from those? I'd be with you. I would. I'd be exactly what you just said. Because some of these some of these stories are in question, but it just seemed like the longer we go, and and your right. book with Gary Habermas, uh, immortality goes. Gary's that's his more specialty, and he goes into more right. detail there. But uh, some of these things are just. I remember you sitting at uh, ETS right next to uh, Nancy Murphy, uh, raising a question with her about an NDE, and she just she completely just waved you off because the the illustration was so completely powerful. But the person who went down the hall, so to speak, and saw the nurse drop the baby, yeah, and injure the baby. I, 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 that's exactly right, and that's documented. It's in the medical record. I mean, it, it, so this is medically verified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. Is, it doesn't. It, it's hard to jump from there to the reality of an afterlife, an extended afterlife. But certainly, right. that the self can be separated yes. from the body. Uh, that's demonstrated clearly by NDAs. Uh, Jay. What a treat to be with you today. Thank you for spending some time. Uh, I know you've had a pretty complicated schedule in a lot of ways recently. It's so sweet to be with you today. Love you, my brother. It's always a privilege. The book is The Substance of Consciousness. Just one more added to a whole series of books. If you want the kind of the thumbnail sketch, get the book, The Soul. That will do you well. It's available on uh, Amazon.com. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Go out and give them heaven, my friends. Bye-bye now.